All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And as you can probably tell, I'm sounding a little nasally. Not COVID, just a uh, typical cold uh, that you get during these colder months. And not and a perfect uh, film to talk about while we're sick is A Man for All Seasons, because every man gets sick across all seasons. Right, John? No. If you're getting sick in every season, that's a bad. That's bad. You shouldn't get sick that many times. Was it? Oh, now I'm trying to think of what uh, Shirley MacLaine said in the apartment. It, or Jack Levin said, what, the average man gets sick five times a year? And she says, like, I don't oh, get yeah. sick at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the man that gets sick five times a year, probably. Average. Anyways, <laughs> speaking of movies and Best Picture winners, we're talking about the 1966 Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. And it's based off of the play of the same name, based off of the uh, Thomas More uh, fiasco during the 1500s in England and the thing we wanted to start off this episode and talking about was dialogue heavy films and plays that are converted uh, onto film and adapted and just kind of how that works and you know sometimes even very Oscar baity sometimes you know Oscar voters love these plays or musicals that get adapted and and how well it translates onto screen but for some people it's not necessarily the most entertaining form of, of filmmaking and viewing because you can get very lost in the dialogue sometimes people think it's too static maybe there isn't enough action because sometimes what they do on the stage doesn't necessarily translate well to the screen so I just wanted to kind of open the floor to dialogue heavy narratives and plays that are adapted for film so John just leading, letting you uh, take us on that journey where do you want to go to first of dialogue heavy films when talking about that well, I thought it was interesting that this year out of the five Best Picture nominees that we have three that are all based on plays uh, and all plays from around the same time. I think A Man for All Seasons is probably the oldest play that we've seen here just due to the history of it. But what I found so interesting is that they're all based on plays. They're all very heavily, uh, heavily use and integrate dialogue into them. So that's kind of what you're kind of hitting on. But they are all so drastically different, which is what I thought was so interesting and I'm not going to go too deep into the plots of each film. Obviously, we're going to break down A Man for All Seasons throughout the whole show here. And we'll talk about the other Best Picture nominees as well when we get to the Best Picture. But I wanted to specifically hit on how different each of these movies are, yet they're still all based on stage plays. So obviously, we have A Man for All Seasons, which is very much a period piece taking place in 1500s England that kind of dives into the, the politics of the day and how that's kind of translated and reflected on the 60s and the time that the country is in as well but it's so drastically different than some of these other films like who's afraid of virginia wolf which is such a centered film that's all focused on this couple mainly and their interactions with this other couple and the whole play and the whole film basically takes place in one house uh, while for instance a man for all seasons it's a much larger location they try to show you uh, the english countryside some of Chelsea, the way it kind of appeared back in the 1500s, and it's kind of showing you a kind of luxury side of the people of the 1500s, and it's it's taking you around more than just one location where Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf 
is kind of centered and locked down, much like what you would see in a lot of films that are based on plays and a lot of just stage plays where you kind of want to reduce the budget and reduce the amount of settings that you have to create. And by making it all based in one room, you kind of create this like dynamic energy between the actors and either why they're stuck there, how they get out and so forth. Uh, But we also have the third other film, which is Alfie starring Michael Caine, which was also based on a stage play. And this is, I think, very much of the time of the 60s in terms of the roaring free love and open expressionism that you kind of see in the 60s and especially in Britain at the time where they were kind of dominating pop charts with the Beatles and tons of different uh, pop hits uh, from the 60s and the 50s coming in from the 50s. Uh, But I thought Alfie was so interesting because it, it separates us in such a different way where it doesn't even feel like a stage play other than the way our fourth wall breaking narrator kind of guides us through the story. So we have that aspect as what we might see in films or on a stage, uh, a kind of a narrator who talks to the audience directly, but this time it's kind of brought into the world of cinema, which is such an interesting way because we don't really see much fourth wall breaking. I mean, we mention it in Tom Jones, but it is kind of very minor even in that film, But in Alfie from 1966, the whole film is centered around this narrator who can talk directly to the audience. And it's filled with a bunch of beautiful colors and it's filled with a bunch of 60s fashion and is vibrant and bright. And it explores a lot of England as well in London. And it doesn't feel at all like a stage play. And I just thought it was so interesting that with Alfie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, A Man for All Seasons... And if you were to take those three films and just ask someone generally, maybe they've seen them, maybe they just look at the poster uh, or a trailer and and ask them whether which one of these is based on a play. I think everyone would say immediately it's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf because it's this like centered film. It's stuck in one location. It's really wordy. It has a lot of dialogue of just two characters going back and forth at each other. But it's so interesting to see that a film like Alfie or A Man for All Seasons is also based on a stage play. And I thought this brought a bigger question of basically how we can adapt stage plays and how much you can kind of either change for the film adaptation or how you can just expand on it. If you have a couple sets in the stage play, you can kind of expand that and show a much bigger world in film. So I just thought it was interesting. I wanted to break down basically those three films of our five Best Picture nominees this year and how they're all based on plays and how they're all so drastically different. So with that being said, Ben, is there anything else you want to hit on with these three films or just, you know, dialogue heavy films that are based on plays? Well, I think it's more about how plays are adapted in general, like how they are staged and and what gets kept and what doesn't get kept and there is a particular character that and i didn't see the stage play of a man for all seasons but reading on the production of it there's a certain character that i thought would have been would have been great to have included in it to give some more context would have added a little bit more i think of what the themes of of what the film is going for and i think to the other side of with who's afraid who's afraid of virginia wolf is because it's so dialogue heavy and imagine it's a stage play and you know it's probably riveting to see all that dialogue happening back and forth and what they do in the film is they enhance that with how they interact within the house because they have more space to play with they have more settings to play with so it's about how it gets adapted and how it gets treated that i think is the most interesting way of of play adaptations and dialogue heavy films so i think there's a lot to explore we're going to hit on a bunch of it but let's ask that age-old question is A Man for All Seasons worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1966? 
A Man for All Seasons A devout scholar gets caught in the middle of Henry VIII's plans to break with the Catholic Church. The film covers the years 1529 to 1535 during the reign of Henry VIII. During a private late-night meeting at Hampton Court, Cardinal Wolsey, Lord Chancellor of England, chastises Thomas More for being the only member of the Privy Council to oppose Wolsey's attempt to obtain from the Pope an annulment of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, as their marriage has not produced a male heir. With the annulment, Henry would be able to marry Anne Boleyn, with whom he hopes to father such an heir and avoid a repeat of the War of the Roses. More says that he cannot agree to Wolsey's suggestion that they apply pressure on church property and revenue in England. Unknown to More, the conversation is being overheard by Wolsey's aide, Thomas Cromwell. Returning to his home at Chelsea at dawn, Moore finds his young acquaintance, Richard Rich, waiting for his return so as to lobby for a position at court. Moore instead offers Rich a job as a teacher. Rich declines Moore's offer, saying that teaching would offer him little chance to become well-known. Moore finds his daughter Meg chatting with a brilliant young lawyer, William Roper, who announces his desire to marry her. The devoutly Catholic Moore says he cannot give his blessing as long as Roper remains a Lutheran. Sometime later, Wolsey dies in a rural monastery in disgrace after banishment from court for failing to obtain the papal annulment Henry wanted. Henry appoints Moore Lord Chancellor of England. The king makes an impromptu visit to the Moore estate and again requests Moore's support for an annulment, but Moore remains unmoved as Henry alternates between threats, tantrums, and promises of unbounded royal favor. As the king leaves, Cromwell promises Rich a position at court in return for damaging information about Moore. Roper, learning of Moore's quarrel with the king, says that his religious views have altered considerably and declares that by attacking the church, the king has become the devil's minister. Moore is admonishing Roper to be more guarded when Rich arrives, pleading again for a position at court. When Moore again refuses, Rich denounces Moore's steward as a spy for Thomas Cromwell. An unmoved Moore responds, Of course, that's one of my servants. Humiliated, Rich joins Cromwell in attempting to bring Moore down. Meanwhile, the king orders Parliament and the bishops to declare him supreme head of the Church of England. Embracing this, the bishops and Parliament accede to the king's demands and renounce all allegiance to the Pope. Moore quietly resigns as Lord Chancellor rather than accept the new order. His close friend, Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk, attempts to draw out his opinions in a friendly private chat, but Moore knows that the time for speaking openly of such matters is over. In a meeting with Norfolk, Cromwell implies that Moore's trouble will be over if he will attend the king's wedding to Bullen. After Moore does not, he is summoned again to the royal palace of Hampton Court, where Cromwell interrogates Moore inside Wosley's former office. Moore refuses to answer, and an infuriated Cromwell reveals that the king's views Moore as a traitor, but allows him to leave. The Thames boatmen are aware of the king's hostility to Moore and refuse to ferry him, so Moore returns home on foot. As Moore finally arrives, his daughter Meg informs him that a new oath is being circulated and that all must take it or face charges of high treason. Initially, Moore says he might be willing to take the oath depending on its wording. Upon learning that it names the king as supreme head of the church and allows no legal or moral loopholes, 
Moore refuses to take it and is imprisoned in the Tower of London. Moore remains steadfast in his refusal to take the oath and refuses to explain, knowing that he cannot be convinced if he has not explicitly denied the king's supremacy. A request for new books to read backfires, resulting in a confiscation of the books he has, and Rich removes them from Moore's cell, providing an opportunity for Rich to further debate Moore. Moore says goodbye to his wife Alice, Meg, and Roper, urging them not to try to defend him, but to leave the country of England. Soon after, Moore is brought to trial, with Cromwell appearing as counsel for the prosecution. Moore refuses to express an opinion about the king's second marriage or why he will not take the oath. As an experienced lawyer and judge, he cites his silence as part of his defense, based upon the legal principle that silence is to be interpreted as consent. Cromwell calls Rich to testify, and Rich alleges that when he went to confiscate Moore's books, Moore told him that while Parliament has the power to dethrone the king, it does not have the authority to make the king the head of the church. A horrified Moore offers to take an oath required by the court that he never said any such thing to Rich. Moore adds that he would never be so suicidal as to entrust so dangerous an opinion to such a man as that. As Rich leaves the witness box, he emerges that Rich has been made Attorney General for Wales as a reward from Cromwell for committing perjury, much to Moore's chagrin. Under the direct order from Cromwell, the jury convicts Moore without leaving the courtroom to deliberate. But as the judges begin to pronounce the death penalty, Moore interrupts and reminds them that prisoners are to be asked before sentencing if they have anything to say. Upon being so asked by the judges, Moore declares, I do. Moore calls Parliament's act of supremacy repugnant to every legal precedent and institution in all history of Christendom. He cites the biblical foundation of the patrine privacy and the authority of the papacy rather than national governments over the church. Moore further declares that the church's freedom from state control and interference is guaranteed both in Magna Carta and the king's coronation oath. As uproar ensues, the judge pronounces sentence according to the standard form. Moore is to be remitted to the tower to await execution by beheading. The scene switches from the court to Tower Hill, where Moore observes custom by pardoning and tipping the executioner. Moore declares, I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first. He kneels at the block, and off screen, the executioner cuts off Moore's head. A narrator intones an epilogue, listing the subsequent untimely deaths of the major characters, apart from Rich, who became Chancellor of England and died in his bed. A Man for All Seasons was directed by Fred Zinneman. Written by Robert Bolt, adapted from Robert Bolt's screenplay of the same name. Produced by Fred Zinneman and executive produced by William N. Graff. Music by George Delarue. Cinematography by Ted Moore. Film editing by Ralph Kemplin. And production design by John Box. A Man for All Seasons stars Paul Schofield as Sir Thomas Moore. Wendy Hiller as Alice Moore. Robert Shaw as King Henry VIII. Leo McKern as Thomas Cromwell. Orson Welles as Cardinal Wolseley. Susanna York as Margaret Moore. Nigel Davenport as Duke of Norfolk. John Hurt as Richard Rich. Corin Redgrave as William Roper. And Colin Blakely as Matthew. Thomas, you insult his majesty and council in the person of the Lord Archbishop. I insult no one. I will not 
take the oath, I will not tell you why I will not. Then your reasons must be treasonable. Not must be, maybe. Oh, it's a fair assumption. The law requires more than an assumption. The law requires a fact. Ah, well, of course, I cannot judge your legal standing in the case, but until I know the ground of your objections, I can only guess your spiritual standing, too. If you're willing to guess that, Your Grace, it should be small matter to guess my objection. Then you do have objection to the act. Well, we know that, Cromwell. Uh, no, my lord, you don't. You may suppose I have objections. All you know is that I will not swear to it, for which you cannot lawfully harm me further. But if you were right in supposing me to have objections, and right again in supposing my objections to be treasonable, the law would let you cut my head off. So a man for all seasons, John. Uh, did you have any idea of what the film was before you even saw it? Not a clue, man. I really thought this was like... <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like I just know the name. And I think I just remember seeing the poster. And I'm like, oh, this guy wearing this kind of like cool outfit. But it's like, you know, silhouetted. You got the cool font logo and his silhouette. I thought this was like a spy movie. Like kind of an... <laughs> an <laughs> I thought it was... I just did not think it was this. That's for sure. I didn't really know what to expect at all. I didn't know anything about this movie. And, wow, I was surprised and, uh, I guess, let down. In a- <laughs> yeah. yeah, it threw me off as well when I first watched it. And uh, now every time that I have watched it, I've like grown accustomed to it. And I'm like, okay, now I know the story and now like, I get this. But I think that's also the main issue of this is that you've really got to know not just like I know who King Henry the Eighth was. I knew about Anne Boleyn. I knew how he was like, you know, he wanted a male heir, and he, you know, I I knew all that. But to know Thomas More specifically and like that part of the story, I think is asking a lot from an audience. And again, like we've kind of gone over that in other parts and other movies that we've talked about, where you have to really know the history. Maybe back then it was more prevalent in education and maybe what people were talking about but i definitely know like in my world history classes thomas moore was not really brought up (laughs) in this sort of way in his story and so yeah this film asks a lot for you to know and to know the history and to understand it because it doesn't give you enough context it it says oh well this is this character and they just start talking and you're like okay i guess i can pick up this context clue based on the dialogue but the dialogue is very heavy it's also done in old english and not there's anything wrong with that but it's not like that's very easy to just get into and you know having subtitles now like that definitely helps but at the same time it it like totally kills it and then the i kind of mentioned the cold open there's a character they omitted and i wish they had included this character it's called the common man and in the play the common man plays like a bunch of like different roles one is playing matthew which is uh thomas moore's like house servant uh another person he plays is the the guy rowing the boat he plays the executioner he plays the uh the the jury i I don't know what the main person on a jury is called when they give out the verdict but he plays that and i think that's like really cool to have that character floating around the idea was that uh, the common man is kind of like among all of us uh you know it was like and I got this quote from reading about it uh, that he, the common man in the being in the place says the 16th century was the century of the common man. Like all, 
like all the other centuries. So it's like how, even though there's all this other stuff going on in history that we know about, every century is still filled by the common man, the common person, you or I. And I think that's like a really great way to introduce a story because and have it narrate throughout because it kind of, it creates levity. It makes things light. You understand it better. You get more context. And so just to admit that, and then just to do the play on the film as is, without giving it a lot of context, really hurts it because if they had just spent some time in a creative way to, okay, you can admit the common man, but maybe you tell the history in other ways, whether it's through other side dialogue introducing to some scenes or even just a subtitle like, oh, this is 1529, now we're in 1531, and now we're in this year. Would have added way more and made it more believable than like, like honestly, like when I watch this movie, without knowing that it took place over six years, I thought this took place over maybe like two weeks, you know? And so I think that's the thing is that you, when you adapt plays and you take, uh, you adapt it to film, you have to include sometimes like really important things to make it flow better. So uh, that's kind of like my big thing with this movie is that it needed more context to a lot of things. And I think it would have made it easier for me and you to maybe get into it besides us now feeling like, Oh, the movie was kind of meh. I wish I knew more. Yeah. It's, I wish I definitely knew more. I, I, I mean, at this point, me learning about any king from England is so far back in my education that it probably goes back to middle school at this point. So we're talking like 15 years ago. I, I can't remember anything. I barely remember anything that I learned last year, let alone 15 <laughs> years ago. So the, the film does, in a way, it's like bringing you in by having this character who's not like a... He is kind of high up in society, but he is kind of like introducing us into this world. And I love the way they kind of bring us in and show us the kind of setting and the difference between where Moore lives and the, the castle and everything like that, where the king is. But I it's I almost found this film harder to dissect than almost Shakespeare in a way, which I found so interesting because people always talk about Shakespeare as being like so hard to decipher for a lot of people. It's this kind of very Shakespearean language and it's... It's just hard to dissect, and I think maybe I've just gotten accustomed to it when I kind of go over a film that's based with Shakespeare's kind of tone and his inflection and a lot of his wording that I've kind of gotten to the point where it's easier to dissect. But something about this being in Old English made it very hard sometimes to even figure out what the hell people were saying in this movie. And it took a couple of, like, rewinds throughout some dialogue because... This movie, like we opened up with, is just so dialogue heavy. It's just like so many scenes of characters just talking back and forth to each other about, you know, what it means for him to take another heir, or what it means for him to, excuse me, what it means for him to have an heir, what it means for him to take another wife, you know, and, and all the repercussions that'll come from that if more kind of tries to stop this from happening. And it, it was just so heavy in a way that I couldn't really relate to any of the characters. I couldn't really... Get become too invested because of just the way the film was presented but the film is not just as kind of locked down like some of the other films that you may see that have been adapted from plays I think that it did a good job of kind of using cinematography to kind of like explore this world I thought there was some cool framing in terms of the cinematography I think the overall look of the film is kind of like muddy but maybe that is just how the film probably hasn't been restored it, it clearly this isn't a man for all seasons isn't really a movie that I ever hear people talking about in the film world I didn't ever talk about it in school I don't remember literally everyone really talking about this movie but there are certain people that you know really find this movie intriguing and really love this movie but 
I just have to flat out say that it. this is like one of those films that is so hard for me to analyze and pick apart because I can't really point to things and say like, oh, that's bad. Like that shot's out of focus. I don't like that dialogue. Like that's a bad acting performance. I think like everything in this movie is 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 pretty like well done. Like the acting performances are phenomenal. The film has a lot of cool visuals. It can be pretty slow at times in just terms of how much dialogue it is and it's pretty slow in terms of its pacing as well, but none of that's really a bad thing. It's serving the story it's trying to tell. I just think I don't really care about this story. And I know a lot of people will be like, "Well, this like has so much more than just more literally more making this decision it's a lot more than just that and it has a lot of repercussions on what may happen because of this decision and because if he doesn't take this stand now maybe it'll you know roll down the hill and become worse and worse and to the fact that he may uh i don't know Uh, it's just it's so far removed from me trying to like understand this plot and I know people are like, well, you can reduce it down and make it simple and make it just about, you know, standing by what you believe in and standing by, you know, your morals. And I'm like, the film is very much about that. Yes, I see that. But at the same time, I just feel so far removed from this. And I don't know if it's the period that it takes place in, their old English dialogue. I really don't even know what it is. Maybe it takes me a couple more watches of this film to really get it, but I just felt so disconnected and getting through this movie was such a slog for me. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how else to approach it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's totally fair. Like, I feel the same way that it's, it is a muddy looking film, but nothing wrong with some of the shot choices. The acting is really good. Um, the, some of the screenwriting is really good, but it's just, it's not enough. And it, it's really hard to dive into it's, And And the other thing about it is that it's actually quite a simple story with very easy solutions and kind of like so what type of reaction to it from from my perspective today and really the story is just about that Henry VIII wants to marry somebody else and more just does not support it himself and everybody is so fixated on that that it's kind of like well one what if you just didn't care what more had to say (laughs) <laughs> was you know and i know more was an influential mind at the time and you know was a writer and, and he was a chancellor of england and it's kind of like yeah but so what you don't have to listen to that and and he kind of makes that point too uh there's a line where he says uh some men think the earth is round others think it's flat it is a matter capable of question but if it is flat will the king commands make it round and if it is round will the king's command flatten it so it's like it's kind of whatever the king says and he says that and he's just is saying or really he's not saying anything because his stance is if i don't say anything no one can condemn me for anything because my silence is might as well just be i go with it but i don't have to necessarily approve of it but henry the eighth is like this baby in the film and he's like no i need moore's uh approval <laughs> on this and it's like you don't really need it you did it already you, you obviously need it and so it's it's kind of this weird thing where it's like, well, there's an easy solution to it. And then the other storyline there is Richard Rich, which honestly, how do I not think of Richie Rich? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And that whole thing and that movie. Um, And he just wants a position in court and more just like, no, I'm not going to give it to you. And it's because Rich is a spiteful person really. And he, and he uses political office as a means of power where, 
And I, and I think that's like one of the good things that the film comments on. It makes like some really great lines about is that if someone is seeking political power for their own power, they should not have that political power. And it's kind of again, and it comments too on, on, on the monarchy about how, well, just cause we call him King, does that make him the best fit for King and, and all these reactions? Cause really everybody just falls into line in this movie. It's just like, yeah, whatever the King says, we're just going to go along with it. Cause we only care about ourselves and our own personal gain. And I think that's what makes more a very interesting character because he doesn't allow that to happen. But he lets his own religion, which actually there's really no religion in this film besides the visuals of it. There's not much like, like God, like I'm talking to you right now and help me. It's it's <laughs> it's it's nothing like that at all, which I think is very refreshing. But it also makes you look at more. You're just like, just say yes. Just say, you don't like. He, he makes this. Oh my God. Uh, there, there's another line. Uh, where is it? Uh. And when we die and you are sent to heaven for doing your conscience and I'm sent to hell for not doing mine, will you come with me for fellowship? It's like, dude, just say it. You clearly like have this conviction that like, well, either way, one of us is wrong. Just be the good person that you say you are and just say, go ahead and divorce her. It really doesn't <laughs> matter to me. <laughs> well, I think you hit on a lot of parts that have kind of like helped me figure out why I'm just not just didn't enjoy this movie at all. And I think it, it comes down to a couple different things. One, which I can definitely get into this more, but I'm just not a person of faith. I I completely pushed against any sort of faith when I was younger. I hate being told what to do, and that kind of perfectly aligned with faith for me. I was forced to go to church every Sunday. I was raised a Lutheran, which is also a funny nod into this movie because they kind of like poo-poo Lutherans and they look down upon them, even though you know, I think history has kind of showed Lutherans much better Christians than the Catholics. So, okay, just gonna throw that out there, not to offend any Catholics that are listening. But uh, I think we uh, the the Lutheran side has a much better track record. But anyway, I think that is just something I really struggle with to to be so faithful and to throw your whole spirit, your whole life into something that you can never fully understand, you can never fully see, you can never fully really know that it even exists until you die, according to most religions. So it's just something that I've never really been a part of to this day. I don't know if I'm atheist. I I know that there's something else out there, but I think it's more related to science than it is with faith. So I think just purely based on that, everything more does is so frustrating because it's something that I really can't relate to at all. And it's something that like, I cannot really get behind his character because it's something that I would never do. And whether that's like something that makes a film bad, I love films where I disagree with the character and I don't agree with them, but the whole film is based around this one decision. And I also think that's why I kind of struggle to really get into the film is because the film almost within 10 minutes of it, when we get to meet Orson Welles playing this Cardinal, which he is, fucking haunting looking you know he is getting older and he's getting heavier and he's very disturbing to look at and I think it's like a great casting and obviously a great performance it's Orson Welles but after that scene to me that's almost the like the high of the movie it's like we know what the stakes are we know where more is we know where the side of the church and the king and his king's guard kind of are are positioned and where they align and the movie just kind of repeats itself over and over and over from that point with Moore saying, you know, I could be silent. I don't have to say it. And everyone else saying, no, you need to say something. Silence is saying yes, like, or silence is saying no. Like, it just repeats the same things over and over. And it's conversation after conversation about the same thing. And it just 
the movie ends with exactly how it started with Moore's opposition on that side and everyone else on the other side and he's just dead and the whole point of the movie is is you know sticking by your morals and believing in your faith and I just don't buy it I just I think personally I can just never never connect with it in some way because of those things yeah I think it's really hard to connect with that part and that's what I struggle with too is because he claims it's all real it's religion it's my conviction but it's like but we're not showing that we're not taking the time to give a full breath of what england was really like and i think that's one of the disservices that zinnemann and the filmmakers do in this movie is that they let it just to play play out without giving context to the world around it and that's one of the great things about film making and, and how you can world build is that you can show an expansive world without having to say much and it actually adds more depth. It adds more, you know, it adds, it adds this like uh, weight to a world where you believe that, yeah, religion is dominant. That, yes, the, that whatever the king says does happen, that this England is changing versus where it was before solely based on its leader. And I think that you could have shown that but you don't and and that's why it leaves this movie feeling like very like pieced together like scenes just happen like you're supposed to just believe it just because we say it uh like they how they say that daytime is actually nighttime and nighttime is day like did you find that bizarre about the amount of times that it was clearly daylight and they're like what a beautiful evening this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of the many confusing things about this movie but you know that's just like a technical thing i guess you're kind of limited by the time maybe it's i mean they talk about how cheap this movie is how zimmerman thought it was one of the easiest films or the easiest film that he's ever made so i don't know maybe it's just very much a rush maybe that was a part of it as well i'm not sure but is that but when you say hear that like cinnamon's like oh this is easy to make and it was cheap to make it's like well should that be like rewarded for it like they it was no like it, it just it really no. is not enough so it's and it's a it's kind of why it's easy to make plays into movies because it's pretty cheap you just have all the all the dialogue right there it helps to tell it and it can be successful or it can be kind of it can drag and not really work which is kind of the unfortunate thing that happens in this movie it's great for other things but the story is just so blah and it's surprising and i don't we, we were texting about this and you never answered me uh but you probably seen out our notes of who really likes this movie and it's a filmmaker that we both love <laughs> and that is kevin smith and when, when i saw that kevin smith was a big fan of this movie i was like are you like who who wrote this fake article and then i realized it was the new york times i'm like well this is real and he loves this movie because of the dialogue so i'm gonna kind of read like a bunch of different things from this interview that he did but it kind of he's into dialogue heavy films his own style of filmmaking like if you know kevin smith movies like clerks uh you know like chasing amy mall rats like you can like it's actually kind of obvious that a movie like a man for all seasons would yeah. influence him so he says the dialogue in this movie it pops back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and let's face it this is a movie that's pretty much all dialogue actually that's what i try to do in my movies he said that's all i'm good at i don't even think i try to do it it's just the only thing i can do i'm terrible at action but pretty decent at dialogue and i always thought that this movie had a lot to do with why i write the way i write 
Because this is such a definitive film for me, Lauren knows I love popcorn movies as much as the next guy. The Star Wars films were a huge part of my life, but this is one of the first movies that introduced me to the notion of dialogue and character and nothing else really needing to happen. He goes on to say, well, this film is all about dialogue too, but nobody ever calls Zinnemann on, on the fact that it's not visually popping because he's so skillful, that's debatable, that he's able to tell the story in a way that despite all the dialogue, it doesn't feel static. It does. And I wish I could do that. Uh, and he goes on to say, I watched it and I just fell in love with it in general, even though it was on television and interrupted by commercials, it knocked me out. Um, and so he goes on and on about the, you know, the dialogue of the movie, how he watched this, uh, you know, in his school, he, Kevin Smith has always talked about how he grew up in a Catholic family. So, you know, the idea of religion and conviction being the whole driving force for a character like Thomas More really appealed to him. And that's great. And, and it, and I think it's great that dialogue movies can do that for you. Like there are tons of dialogue movies that have done that for me, like clerks that I love it so much, but also this story is, is static. There really is nothing to it. I mean, I have, I said this for multiple last couple episodes where I have the movie playing in front of me. They're just talking. It's the same thing over and over again. Where like Thomas Moore. Do you accept this? No, I'm just going to say silent. It. Will you accept this? Nah, so not gonna. And then like this was to say like two years pass, and it's like no, I'm still not gonna accept this whole notion, and that the, and Henry the Eighth can do whatever he wants, and for two hours, and it actually goes by pretty quickly. But for two hours, it's kind of like okay, we get it more. You're not gonna accept it. So what's the next conflict? And there is none. And usually films that are dialogue heavy, like a play, will dive into that. You know, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's two hours of drunken going back and forth and back and forth. But it covers so many different things about relationships, about how your past can haunt you, about how doing what you do now is a direct, you know, uh, a direct reflection of who you of who you are and your spouse. It, it, it goes in a multitude of ways. And that's what makes that movie so great, even though it's so heavy, whereas this is heavy, but it's just so simple in its storyline. And that's the infuriating part uh, that they just kind of lackadaisically put put it together and it's kind of just accepted as like oh this is a great movie but is it really a great movie or is it just like oh this is an interesting conflict that does happen and maybe as a short film this could be explored like even the last like trial bit that would be interesting to see if that was explored more as a short film whereas the whole film in general it's just like okay we get it more doesn't want to say anything more doesn't want to say anything so this film reminded me a lot of uh all the way back to 1937's The Life of Emile Zola. So another Best Picture winner here. And it reminded me a lot about it because it is centered around a specific plot line around one character. And the character is kind of being put up against the world that he's surrounded by. You know, he they kind of establish this writer who's kind of up against uh, the world. And he's kind of being um, imprisoned and... You know, it, it has similar themes in terms of just the story, but in terms of like the way the pacing goes, that from the very beginning, as soon as we kind of establish our character and what the issue is, the film just kind of like repeats itself over and over until we get to the very end, which is either <laughs> killing our protagonists or letting them escape. So it it's, uh, man, and I know we both like did not like the life of Emil Zola, and I feel similar in a way for a man for all seasons, but it's, it's one of those movies. Like I said, it's just so hard to pick apart because there is, there is very cool aspects to this movie. I think the way it opens of just kind of showing us 
this slow introduction of giving a letter and kind of delivering the letter. Like, it's cool. It really builds in and brings you into this world. And they're trying to do things with the cinematography and kind of framing people in these cool doorways and, you know, making it a little more dynamic. But I just don't think it does enough for what the plot is trying to do at the end of the day. And I think you described it perfectly as where it's just becomes very repetitive, where I think you could get this whole story in probably 30 minutes less than what they do for a two hour film. But it's, it's hard to say that because I, at the center of it, we have Paul Schofield who's just delivering a really great performance. And if, if I'm remembering correctly, I think this was his first on screen performance. Is that right? I think it's one of his early ones. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the film tries to do a lot without doing a lot. I mean, there were some really great performances um, by the guy who plays uh, Henry VIII, uh, Robert Shaw. Like he he knocks it out of the park with it. And you know, I like it would have been great if they had more characters who were put to death, who were opposing the king and his decision. But it really is just like and reading like you know my quick Wikipedia research of this whole conflict. It kind of does seem that Moore was like the only like prime person who is kind of just like, nah, I'm not going to agree to this. I'm not going to say anything about this. So you again, like you could have done so much more of like of how ruthful King Henry the eighth was and, and all the other stuff he's trying to do at court, but the movie focuses only on more. And so you only get like two scenes of Henry the eighth. You only get a scene with Orson Welles. So it, it really doesn't balance everything out and just, and only wants to let it focus on Moore's conflict and which is fine, but it doesn't do enough. It doesn't do more for more. Yeah. Doesn't do more for more. I like these more riffs we got <laughs> going on here. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to also just hit on it. It's not his first film. It's, it's technically his third film, but he just ha- didn't really do many films, not only in his career compared to some of the actors that we've kind of hit on, but this was very early for him in general. Um, he did some, some early TV shows and some earlier films in the late fifties, but this is kind of, I think his biggest role up into date. And, you know, there are really wonderful performances here, and I do think the dialogue can be very quick and snappy, and I could totally see how that kind of translated to Kevin Smith's point of view and how his film kind of hits on religion. And I think you hit on that as well, too, where I think it makes a lot of sense. Kevin Smith is someone who he struggled with the religion, but I think it was later in his life. I think he kind of went along with what his family was telling him, and he kind of you know, followed what this family was kind of going through. And then it wasn't until later in his life, I think around the dogma time and a little before that, where he was kind of questioning his faith and where that led him. So I guess as a young boy who was okay with faith and accepted faith, like it kind of makes sense watching this and, and kind of being more aligned with it. But it's interesting. I don't really run into films like this very often where I'm just like so hard for me to connect to it because of something so specific as faith and a character's faith and the way they kind of navigate it and every decision they make in their life is dependent on their faith because to me that is so far removed from the way I live my life the way I see the world but it is an interesting story at the center of it I just wish we kind of got to it faster and we kind of didn't spend as much time basically repeating the same notes but I don't know. What else is there to say about a man for all seasons? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I feel. I've always felt that way when religion does get brought up in the movies we talk about where 
I'm so far removed from being a religious person. Like I'm the total opposite end of that spectrum that I'm just like, really? Like that's what's holding you back. Like that's you like, you're really gonna hold on to your conviction just for that. You can't just admit it. Like you're not going to go to hell. Like, um, trust me, like nothing bad is going to happen to you if you agree to this or, or, I mean, obviously if you're going to kill somebody, that that's a whole different thing or hurting somebody. But this is just saying like, yeah, the the king can do whatever he wants we're living in, in his world and that's what England was at the time everyone just fell in line they agreed so that they wouldn't come into harm's way so and that kind of ties in the whole Richard Rich thing and I want to end on and this is my favorite line of the entire movie and I think it's so funny when uh when Morris says this so at the end of the during the trial the big crux of it is that Richard Rich uh commits perjury and lies about something that Morris said and Moore is like no I didn't say this and I'll take I'll take an oath for not even saying this and when Richard Rich is walking away from the bench Moore looks at him and notices a a red dragon which is for whales and so he says why Richard it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world but for whales (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was the funniest line of the whole thing like like you know Give up your soul for the whole world. Like if 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 that's what it means, like do it, fine. But it's really gonna get you nothing. But you're gonna sell your soul for whales. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was oh, so funny. So it's God. this movie. It's unfortunate we kind of have just like a quicker conversation about it versus other films, but it really just doesn't have much to it. Like yeah, there are some really good things with the act. The acting is probably the best thing about it. And then it just slowly goes down from there. Like, I would not say the visuals are that good. I would not say that the story is well-paced or well-told. It just, like, happens and it unfolds. And they had many opportunities where they could have done more. So is there any other final thoughts you have, John? Not really. I just want (laughs) to let the audience know that we don't hate British people (laughs) and British culture. After this, My Fair Lady and Tom Jones, we've just... just Well, we love Tom Jones. (laughs) We... I mean, we love Tom I mean, Jones. It I, was just like the, <laughs> it was such a goofy movie and it just really made no it's sense. It's hard not to like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but we, we, de- we do like British culture. We just, uh, just the last few have not, have not been so great. Um, yeah. And I would really love like having that additional knowledge, how much it helps and knowing more about where Hen- Henry the eighth kind of goes from here and where England goes from here. Like it's just, I think it would definitely help. And, you know, maybe I'll come back to this film and, 10 years and I'll find a much better appreciation uh, from it. Yeah. I think that one of the services that filmmakers should have in terms of creating a film and telling a story is that they shouldn't rely on the audience that they have to know so much. You have to give them a little bit. You have to spoon feed them a little bit of context and then you can have your whole payoff. And I think again, like the common man character would have been really great to have in this and would have, Adam Ward, they have to be like this goofy character. So it's like, well, now this is happening. It could have just been a simple. I, I it could have been so simple um, with how they used it, but they decided not to, and decided just to rely on. Well, the audience knows who Thomas Moore is. Do you? Do you know who <laughs> Thomas Moore is? And for whales, all the horse, all the historians out there listening are just like these fools, these idiots for whales. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the 39th Academy Awards. 
Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the on-again, off-again, in-again, out-again 39th Annual Academy Awards. This is the big night. What tension, what drama, what suspense. And that was just deciding whether the show was going on or not. <laughs> Actually, we just got the word about a half hour ago, and I hope the teleprompter knows the strike is over. This could be the first two-hour commercially sponsored pause. Anyway, we're happy the strike is over. The incriminations, suspicions, and anger are all behind us. Now the real fighting begins. The strike had one disaster. Johnny Carson quit, and everyone was very sympathetic. Joey Bishop flew into New York just to help him pack. <laughs> strike took a long time to settle because there was nobody from the networks for the union to talk to. They were all doing newscasts. It's disconcerting to haggle with a network vice president who's wearing makeup. And the networks were hiring anybody that could talk. NBC traded the peacock for a parakeet. I was really caught in the middle being both a star of movies and a star of television. <laughs> Instead of dinner tonight, I just smoked a banana. The 39th Academy Awards were held on April 10th, 1967 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, and the event was hosted once again by Bob Hope. This year, six films won multiple Oscars, A Man for All Seasons, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Grand Prix, Fantastic Voyage, A Man and a Woman, and Born Free. This set a record that was later tied in 2010, 2012, and 2017, and finally surpassed in 2020 and 2021 when seven films won at least two Oscars. Every Best Picture nominee has also been nominated for Best Actor this year. This was also the last year that separate awards were given for black and white and color films in the cinematography category, the art direction, set decoration category, and costume design. The Academy Awards broadcast was almost canceled this year in 1967 because of the strike involving the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, better known as AFTRA. The dispute was settled three hours before the ceremony was scheduled to begin. Honorary Awards. The Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award was given to George Bagnall. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award was given to Robert Wise. And honorary awards went to Yakima Kanut for achievements as a stuntman and for developing safety devices to protect stuntmen everywhere, and Y. Frank Freeman for unusual and outstanding service to the Academy during his 30 years in Hollywood. Best special visual effects went to Art Cruikshank for A Fantastic Voyage. The Fantastic Voyage is a film about a submarine crew who are shrunk to microscopic size and venture into the body of an injured scientist to repair damage to his brain. Best film editing went to Grand Prix to Frederick Steinkamp, Henry Berman, Stuart Linder, and Frank Santillo. Best costume design color went to Joan Bridge and Elizabeth Haffenden for A Man for All Seasons. This is Bridge's first and only career Academy Award win and Hofton's second and final Oscar after previously winning for Ben-Hur in 1960. So, Ben, we didn't really talk too much about the costume design. It's a period piece in 1500s England. Obviously, we get the fabulous and goofy looking costumes with all the little funny hats and I will just pick my favorite costume as King King Henry VIII's costume because I thought his 
goofy little hats and the way he falls into the mud. I just I, I enjoyed that costume. It's so goofy. Oh, we didn't even talk about it. that. That was such a funny scene too, where he just <laughs> he's like, ah, well, Moore's not giving me shit. I'm going to the boats, and everyone just has to run after him, gets in the water, and gets dirty themselves. So, yeah, the cost Oscars love period pieces and going back and all that costuming. Um, Hamlet did it better. I'll say that. Moving on to best costume design, black and white went to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to Irene Sharaf. This is Sharaf's fifth and final Academy Award. She previously won for Cleopatra, West Side Story, The King and I, and An American in Paris. So somebody's work who we've seen for was so that's 15 episodes we've been talking about her. Uh, great work, phenomenal work. Um, she, I love the costuming in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Like really, it's really well done. Uh, even though it's so simple, but her work speaks for itself. Best cinematography color went to A Man for All Seasons by Ted Moore. This is Moore's only Academy Award win. He worked on seven James Bond films, including Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and Live and Let Die. So we talked a little bit about the cinematography, but uh, I shot in Technicolor. It has some very vivid colors. I think this, or excuse me, it doesn't have very vivid colors for what you expect from a Technicolor film. And I think part of that has to do with it not being restored. Uh, I think we probably haven't restored this film since maybe the 90s, if I were to take a guess. I didn't really get to look into that too much, but I think this film would probably look a lot better if it was actually properly restored and scanned. We have some interesting, in terms of visual and, and use of the camera, we have some interesting movement, but... You know, overall, I'm just like shocked that this is the winner. I haven't seen any other nominees here, but the fact that the good, the bad, and the ugly isn't included even as a nomination for best cinematography, bro, shame, bro, shame, shame, bro. bro. That movie <laughs> doesn't even get touched in this fucking Academy <laughs> Yeah, it's a joke. That's a whole other story. Probably just it, looked at as schlocky at the time, you know. That looks schlocky compared to that. <laughs> I rest my case for Wales. Best cinematography black and white goes to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to Haskell Wexler. This is Wexler's first of two Academy Awards, and he would later win for Bound for Glory in 1976. Wexler's work has been considered some of the most influential on modern cinema. Notable works of his includes the 1967 Best Picture winner In the Heat of the Night, and the 1975 Best Picture winner, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, although he was replaced during production by Bill Butler. Um, John, I know you love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, so I'll, I'll give the floor to you in terms of the cinematography because it is amazing. Oh, my God. It's so good. I mean, I think it's hands down that Casablanca and <laughs> I don't know what the third one would be for some of the best black and white cinematography of all time. I mean, it's, it's incredible. That movie... It just it holds up so well in terms of the visuals, especially. But I just love that movie in the way the camera has almost like a life in itself, and it almost like moves on its own. It's almost like its own character trapped in there with the crazy couple. So I just man, what a beautiful movie entirely. And for a film that's like stuck inside one location, like sometimes they go outside of the property or outside of the house onto the property. But man, just stunning what they do with the camera in that movie yeah the lighting is incredible and i think the third movie you were thinking of was uh the broadway melody yes yes thank you thank you (laughs) (laughs) 
Best Art Direction Color went to Fantastic Voyage. Art Direction by Jack Martin Smith and Dale Hennessy. Set Decoration by Walter M. Scott and Stuart A. Reese. Best Art Direction Black and White went to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Art Direction by Richard Silbert and Set Decoration by George James Hopkins. Best Sound went to Franklin Milton for Grand Prix. This is Milton's third and final Career Academy Award after previously winning for Ben-Hur and How the West Was Won. Best Sound Effects goes to Grand Prix to Gordon Daniel. Best Scoring of Music Adaptation or Treatment went to Ken Thorne for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Best Original Music Score went to John Barry for Born Free. This is Barry's first Career Academy Award, and he would go on to win four more Oscars, including wins for Best Score for The Lion in Winter, Out of Africa, and Dances with Wolves, the latter two being Best Picture winners. And Barry is also known for composing the iconic James Bond theme. <laughs> if only they saw the video of what I was doing during that. <laughs> yeah, John was about to do a backflip. <laughs> Best Short Subject Cartoon went to John Hubley and Faith Hubley for Herb Alpert. Best Short Subject Live Action goes to Wild Wings to Edgar Ansey. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Edmund A. Levy for a, t- a Year Toward Tomorrow. Best Documentary Feature went to The War Game. Best Song went to Born Free from Born Free, music by John Barry and lyrics by Don Black. This is Barry's second Academy Award of the evening and Black's only Academy Award win. And let's get real free and listen to Born Free. Born free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows, born free to follow your heart. Live free And beauty surrounds you The world still astounds you It's time you look at a star Best foreign language film went to A Man and a Woman from France Best screenplay based on material from another medium Went to A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt based on his play, A Man for All Seasons. This is Bolt's second Academy Award win, and he won the previous year for his screenplay for Dr. Shivago. Bolt is actually one of 10 screenwriters to win two Academy Awards in this category. And Bolt also wrote Lawrence of Arabia, so this guy definitely knows what he's doing when it comes to writing, um, but it just doesn't translate well onto the screen, unfortunately, for A Man for All Seasons. Yeah, it's so funny to think about how long the script probably was for Lawrence of Arabia and probably not nearly the length of what the actual film is because of how, you know, long some of those shots are, the vistas and everything like that. And the dialogue in both of these films are like fantastic, but it's, it's really up to like the filmmaker to kind of guide us through and how fast of a pacing it is and how fast we move on to something else, you know? So it's an interesting study on just screenwriting in particular, knowing that they wrote or he wrote these two films. 
Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen goes to A Man and a Woman. Screenplay by Claude Leluc and Pierre Uderhoven. Story by Claude Leluc. This is the fourth international feature film to win a screenplay Oscar. The previous winners include Mary Louise from 1945, The Red Balloon from 56, and Divorce Italian Style from 1962. This movie was so hard to find. I, I try to find this online to watch it because I really want to watch more of the foreign pictures. But, man, was it hard to find. I, like, literally couldn't find this movie anywhere online. You couldn't rent it anywhere online. I could only steal it, and that was the only way. <laughs> I didn't even have enough time to watch it anyway. Kids, don't steal movies. But if they don't let you watch it, steal it. Thanks, John. <laughs> Best Supporting Actress went to Sandy Dennis for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as Honey. This is Dennis' only career Oscar win and nomination, and Dennis actually made her film debut in Splendor in the Grass from 1961, which was directed by Elia Kazan, and Kazan actually casted her after seeing her in the production of The Dark at the Top of the Stairs from 1957. After her film debut, Dennis went back to the stage and starred in A Thousand Clowns from 1962 to 1963 and won the Tony Award for Best Actress. Her final film role was in Sean Penn's directorial debut, The Indian Runner, from 1991. Best Supporting Actor went to Walter Matthau for The Fortune Cookie as Whiplash Willie Gingrich. As Matthau's only Oscar win out of three nominations, he would later be nominated for Best Actor in Koch from 1971 and The Sunshine Boys from 75. This Mathau's nomination became the last nomination for an actor in a Billy Wilder film. In total, Wilder directed 14 different actors in Oscar-nominated performances. Best Actress went to Elizabeth Taylor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as Martha. This is Taylor's second Academy Award win and final nomination as she previously won Best Actress for Butterfield 8 in 1961. In total, Taylor was nominated five times for an Academy Award. In order to convincingly play 50-year-old Martha, Taylor gained weight, wore a wig, and used makeup to make herself look older and tired in stark contrast to her public image as a glamorous film star. At Taylor's suggestion... Theater director Mike Nichols was hired to direct the project, despite his lack of experience with film. The production differed from anything she had done previously as Nichols wanted to thoroughly rehearse the play before beginning filming. Wolf was considered groundbreaking for its adult themes and uncensored language and open to glorious reviews. Variety wrote that Taylor's characterization is is at once sensual, spiteful, cynical, pitiable, loathsome, lustful, and tender. Stanley Kaufman of the New York Times stated that she does the best work of her career, sustained and urgent. The film also became one of the biggest commercial successes of 1966. So, Ben, I I recommended you urgently to watch this movie. This is a film that I think I watched the first time in film school. I don't really remember what class it was at this point, but I remember being highly praised by the professor and... You know, I, I wasn't really ready to, to see what I was about to see, and it's not really what I would have expected going into it. But, man, no, now that I remember, it was my first screenwriting professor I ever had, and it was just because of how amazing the screenplay is in this movie. And, I mean, a screenplay can only be words on a page until we have someone like Elizabeth Taylor coming in and, and convincingly 
portray Martha. And I just, knowing how old she was at the time, looking back at her and then talking about her previously in some of the Oscar history here, and knowing how young she was playing Martha at the time, like it's unbelievable that like she looks the way she does and she acts the way she does. She really feels like a 50 plus year old woman. And it is such an amazing performance. Like, what a nasty, just, like, vile person that you, like, at the same time just, like, are cracking up at. And she's hilarious. And she's so mean, but she's, like, clearly loving of her husband. But so much time has gone by that they can, like, treat each other like shit. But it's also, in a way, a form of loving each other. I mean, the movie is so complicated in itself. And I think it's so complicated because of Martha and her relationship with everyone else in the film. But... What did you think of uh, Elizabeth Taylor as Martha and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, she's a fucking powerhouse in that movie. I mean, she she's amazing in it, and I really like the the film as a whole. I mean, she yeah, she makes it so believable that she is playing an older woman, and and the way she carries herself, and the way she presents herself, it, it's it's a great physical role. She really puts herself out there with it. Um, a ton of dialogue, a ton of things that's remember to. Have to have that kind of command. It's really, really remarkable. It gives uh, one of my favorite performances, Margot Channing, Betty Davis portrays her, gives her uh, a good running for it. I mean, like, to compare it to, like, that kind of level is, like, that's, like, some of the best that I think we'll ever see. And, like, I saw Butterfield 8. She's nothing, like, so grand in that in that movie, so I'm, like, really happy that not only does she have a second Oscar, but the Oscar is, like, for a performance that is, like, truly a knockout role. So, uh, yeah, I, I cannot be any more pleased with her winning uh, that role in general. Moving on to Best Actor, went to Paul Schofield for A Man for All Seasons as Sir Thomas More. Schofield's only Academy Award win out of two career nominations. He would later be nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Quiz Show in 1994. Schofield received Best Performance by a Leading Actor at the 1962 Tony Awards for portraying Thomas More in the Broadway production of A Man for All Seasons, and four years later, he would reprise that role. Uh, It's making him one of nine actors to receive a Tony Award and Academy Award for the same role, and Schofield achieved the U.S. Triple Crown of Acting, winning an Oscar, Emmy, and Tony for his work, and he won three awards in a seven-year span which was the fastest of any performer to accomplish the feat. And notably, Paul Schofield did not attend the Oscar ceremony, believing Richard Burton would win Best Actor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, When he won, the statuette had to be mailed to him and was broken in transit. And just adding another thing to that, three out of the four winners for acting that year did not show up to receive their award. Only Walter Matthau was there to receive his award for best supporting actor so very uh very odd but i guess it does happen so john uh because you love who's afraid of virginia wolf i'm sure you love richard burton's role would you have given him the oscar over schofield i would have given best actor to actually michael caine from alfie wow Michael Caine is amazing in this movie. I mean, he carries the whole film from very beginning to the very end. It's him. He's almost on screen in every single scene. He's guiding us through the movie physically, like talking us to the audience directly. And man, I, I, I love movies that break the fourth wall in a way that's like very engaging and interesting. And, you know, sometimes it's a funny spoof film like Jay and Ty and Bob. 
uh, Strike Back where they go and, you know, explore Hollywood and there's all these winks to the cameras. But I love films that also do it in a way where it's meaningful and it, the, the film is kind of like posing to you in a way that makes you question your own morality and makes you question whether this person who is so charming and you fall in love with him and that's what the whole movie's about he's like a serial uh serial cheater he's someone who's just like obsessed with sleeping with women and that's his whole goal basically is to sleep with as many birds as he would say it as possible and he is just i don't think we've ever seen a character in film especially up until this point right i think further as we go into the 70s we get so much more sex in in our film again and so much uh promiscuity that we haven't really seen especially in the 50s and 60s but i think not only is alfie a film that pushes the genre of film and pushes the medium of what we can show what we can talk about but michael Caine kills it he gives such a complicated performance who's both you kind of hate him and love him at the same time. He's he's a very kind of like slimy guy, but he's so charming that you like can't resist it. And that's perfectly who Alfie is. And man, I love Michael Caine. And I mean, Richard Burton is amazing in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, what else can you even say about his performance in that movie? He's phenomenal, and he's it's a it's a troubled, like painful watch because of what the film is about and what they go through and. But you can just feel the history that he has in that movie and not just from the, his dialogue on screen, like his physical performance is, is really quite amazing. And the chemistry he has with Elizabeth Taylor is really amazing. But I would probably give it to Michael Caine here specifically for the film, what he is him as a character kind of like represents and how the era of the 60s is changing. I think Alfie would have been a perfect character and Michael Caine would have been a perfect best actor this year. Moving on to Best Director, went to Fred Zinneman for A Man for All Seasons. This is Zinneman's fourth Academy Award win, and he previously won for Best Director in 1953's Best Picture winner From Here to Eternity, Best Documentary Short Subject for Benji in 1951, and Best Short Subject One Reel for That Mothers Might Live from 1938. So we didn't talk too much about Zinneman and we talked a little bit about how this is a $2 million production. It was what he was quoted as saying, one of the easiest films he ever made. I feel like that's such a negative thing to say, you know yep. what I mean? Like in a way, <laughs> in a way it just kind of like you, you kind of think about like, Oh, there's just a lot of corners that you kind of rounded and cut off because to make it as easy as possible. Why was it so easy? Because it's a stage play because actors already knew some of the role already. Like, there's so many different avenues like you could kind of point to of why a film was easy to make. And I just immediately always think of, oh, you just like made it easy as possible by like cutting things off or or just not trying too hard. I, that's just like where my mind goes immediately. But I don't know. You tell me. What do you think? Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it, too. It's kind of unfortunate because we really liked From Here to Eternity, really love some of the direction that he was doing in that. And this just this doesn't feel like someone who's considered like a master at his craft, you know, putting together. It feels very one note, very simplistic. And I don't think that it should be like, he, he has some really great films in his catalog, like high noon that is masterful work. Whereas this does not live up to that standard. So there's nothing that this movie does that's so wrong, but it doesn't do anything. That's so great. I think that's a great way to put it. And finally, Best Picture. The nominees are Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Sand Pebbles, 
The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Alfie and our winner of the Best Picture Award for 1966 is A Man for All Seasons going to Fred Zinneman. This is Zinneman's fifth and final Academy Award. This is only one of four productions to win both Best Play Tony and the Best Picture Oscar. The other three are My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, and Amadeus. So, John, giving some stats and figures to uh, to A Man for All Seasons. It has a 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 7.76 average rating. Uh, the top critic percentage is actually a 57% of an average rating of 2.5. Uh, and that's only out of seven critics. So, again, that number is very skewed. The audience score is an 87 of an average uh, audience rating of 4.17. IMDb gives it a 7.7, and it's a 72 on Metacritic, and it won six Oscars out of eight nominations. John, what did you give A Man for All Seasons? I gave A Man for All Seasons a 65 out of 100. And I think I hit on a lot of the reasons why. I think I personally just don't connect with this. And I, I want to use this time and basically say that, like, it's fine to not like a movie and to not connect with a film. You know, I think film is very much subjective, like we always say. And we bring our own personal experiences into a movie. And whether, you know, you personally just don't like a character, you personally don't like the way the story went, I think that's perfectly fine. I think as long as you're having a discussion where you can always talk about those technical elements, what makes a movie, the performances, the way it looks, the way it sounds, I think you always have to talk about those elements. And if you don't, you're not properly analyzing a film. But you also come with baggage. You come with your own perception, your own feelings, your own experiences. And sometimes they just don't jive. You know, sometimes I just don't want to watch a film that's just all heavy dialogue driven about how the king needs to remarry right and i sometimes you just don't connect with it and it's funny i was thinking this is a little bit of a tangent but i was thinking a lot about this movie with house of dragons because it just you know it's around the same time house of dragons just came out it's a show all about a king trying to have you know an heir to the throne and by doing any means necessary in order to get that heir but at the same time, you compare the two, obviously we're comparing something that's 60 years later with crazy special effects and dragons. You can't really compare the two, but it, it's an interesting like thought bubble just to have and how similar in terms of the actual story of you know wanting to produce a male heir is kind of related to that and just how that funny timing of how close they are. But I gave it a 65 just because I just wish the movie kind of moved faster and we had a lot more to explore in terms of the characters. And I just felt like it was very one note at the end of the day. Well, funny enough, as I push up my nerd glasses, uh, <laughs> George R. R. Martin took heavy influence from old English history and uh, War of the Roses specifically, which was uh, what they were trying to prevent with uh, getting a male heir out of Henry VIII. So you're not wrong with how you're thinking and why it connects it. It connects for a very obvious way. And that's because George R. R. Martin took inspiration from it. So it's, it's cool. It's, it's cool how that comes full circle in today's world and what we're watching today. But, uh, my rating for a man for all seasons is 70. I think this movie does a lot of things. Well, it dialogue is, is really good. The acting is really great, but the story itself is just so one note. It's way too self-contained in this, uh, conflict that Moore has, how he too, holds too much to his conviction. It's just not enough for me at the end of the day. 
I, it needs more. I would I think I would appreciate this more as the play version of itself. Uh, so I give it a seventy, which isn't a very high rating. It's it's pretty like for me again like eighty or above is like pretty good for a movie. So to me, seventy isn't so great. So our average rating right now, John, you're at a seventy-two point nine, so it was a seventy-three. And I'm at a 75.8, so almost a 76 out of the 39 movies that we have seen. So, John, let me ask you that question. Is A Man for All Seasons worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1966? I'm going to say no, because I think we have much better films. Like, for me personally, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is fucking phenomenal. It is such an amazing film, top to bottom. I think it's such an engrossing, engaging film. And I love Alfie so much. We mentioned the good, the bad, and the ugly. The fact that's not even nominated and even included here at all is pretty outrageous and pretty ridiculous. But personally, if I had to probably pick out of any of these movies, I've only seen Alfie once, but I really loved it. But I'd probably have to go with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf because I love, love, love that movie. It is so personable and just hard-hitting. And in the dialogue and what the film talks about is so relevant even till today I think any couple or anyone who's experienced a relationship can watch that movie and and be really hit and and really struck by how personal it is so if I really had to pick it would be who's afraid of Virginia Woolf for the best picture of 1965 so no it's not worthy and I would agree that it is not a worthy film unfortunately uh we don't and we don't really say it too often but yeah man for all seasons not worthy to me as a best picture winner Again, just doesn't do enough for the main storyline, and uh, it left a lot on the table. In terms of what I would pick, uh, John, this may shock you. I don't know if I would pick Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and I actually don't know what I would pick in general. I like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf a lot, but I think I get so lost in, again, like it's heavy dialogue. It's very out there, and I don't know if it's like that's what makes it a, a best picture. It's a phenomenal film, but I don't know. I, but I guess like I would have to default to that. I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly isn't here and nominated for it, so I guess that doesn't really give it a fair mm-hmm. shake. But uh, it's a very odd year. It's a very odd year because we're coming off of like you know, come off the sound of music, and the next year with In the Heat of the Night, it's like a very social and political film that's like very relevant to the U.S. even to today. We've had a lot of great movies, but this this year feels kind of like a down note. But sometimes when they're what feels like a down note year is actually a, a kind of a good year. So who knows? It's it's strange, but yeah, a man for all seasons, not worthy of the best picture award. So any last thoughts on the film on 1966? Anything you want to talk about uh, while we have some time left here, John? Yeah, I wanted to just, you know, since the film's so much about faith, believing in your faith, I wanted to just end this by saying that yes you should always you know lead with your faith if that's truly the way you want to live your life i'm never going to put someone down based on their religion it's just something that i always struggled with and kind of identifying with but the way i'll end it with is that you should always lead with your faith if that's the way you want to lead but you should always question your faith and you should always be open to listening to other people's perspective and always be open to question your faith and, and not a negative way just always be open to hearing other perspectives and uh yeah question your faith as much as you believe in your faith yeah i I think i agree there john uh it's faith is a very interesting thing it's a personal thing i have faith in other things that are just not religion so it's uh i think you put it there best but i just want to say again why richard 
It profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world. But for whales? But for whales? But for whales. <laughs> That's it for A Man for All Seasons. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is, is worthy. worthy. There is one question I would like to ask the witness. That's a chain of officer wearing. May I see it? The Red Dragon. What's this? Sir Richard is appointed Attorney General for Wales. For Wales. Why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world. But for Wales. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.